Amen. To him and through him are all things. If you have and I hope you do, find this. keep going till we till we stop how about that <laughs> that's all right that's all right that's just that's just the the mike's way of going you better not be too long He'll, he must have lunch plans today or something i don't know but that's all right we've been working our way section by section through the book of exodus we come now to the law section of the book of exodus in a series called the book of the covenant and friends last week in exodus 21 to 22 it really was like drinking through a fire hydrant we covered two whole passages of the Bible. We talked about what the Old Testament teaches about slavery, care for the poor, lots of very heavy topics. I hope today's a little more like a glass of lemonade on the back porch on a summer's day to sort of balance that out. So look with me to chapter 23, and we'll continue reading to the end of You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. Nor shall, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. For six years you sow your land and gather in its yield, but the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie hollow, that the poor of your people may eat, and what they leave the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may rest, and that the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. Three times in the year you shall keep a feast for me. You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I command you, you shall, eat, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib, for in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. You shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. You shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather. 
always appear before the Lord God. You shall not offer the blood of any sacrifice and anything leavened, nor let the fat of my feast remain until the morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared. Pay careful attention to him and obey his voice. Do not rebel against him, for he will not pardon your transgression, for my name is in him. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, then I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. When my angel goes before you and brings to you the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I will blot them out, you shall not bow down to their gods nor serve them. Nor do as they do, but you shall utterly overthrow them and break their pillars in pieces. You shall serve the Lord your God, and he will bless your bread and your water, and I will take sickness away from among you. None shall miscarry or be barren in your land. I will fulfill the number of your days. I will send my terror before you and throw into confusion all the people against whom you shall come. And I will make all your enemies turn their back to you. And I will send hornets before you, which shall drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites from before you. I will not drive them out before you in one year, lest the land become desolate and the wild beasts and the multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out from before you, until you have increased and possessed the land. And I will set your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines, and from the wilderness to the Euphrates. For I will give the inhabitants of the land into your hand, and you shall drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them and their gods. They shall not dwell in your land, lest they make you sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. This is the word of God. Recall last week we began looking at the law and I laid out a principle or a way of approaching and applying this section of the scripture. Because so often I think we come to this section of the Bible and the eyes glaze over. What does this have to do with me, right? And Exodus 21 to 23 contains what's been historically called the civil law of God. It is what we call the house rules for the people of Israel, the particular way in which they were to apply the Ten Commandments within their context. And here was the principle. The principle was we take the general that's behind the particular. We take the general principle that was behind the particular precept, and we're to look at that universal command and apply it into our particular circumstances. So I encourage everybody, I encourage you to do it again. Go home this week, even this afternoon, while the game's on, whatever you want to do, and look at Exodus 21 to 23. And as you go through every couple verses, just begin to mark next to it, which of the Ten Commandments is being applied there? What is this telling the people of Israel to do? And then how can we apply this as people living outside of ancient Israel under a different and better covenant. And I'll tell you, applying the universal behind the particular was not some clever idea I came up with. In fact, the apostles did this in their application of the law. It comes right out of the Apostle Paul. 
Let me show you this. 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 17. Paul says this. Let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching. For the scripture says, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain, and the laborer deserves his wages. So let's notice what Paul does here. First, he quotes from Deuteronomy 25, laws relating to oxen, and then he also quotes from the book of Luke, and he calls both of them scripture. He puts the Old and New Testament and says both of them are God's inspired word to us. But again, we see Paul taking a command from Deuteronomy 25.4 saying, hey, let the oxen eat of the field as it works. And then he says, hey, you should read that and think about your pastor. You should pay your pastor because he is an ox. That's sort of what Paul's point is. Really what he's saying is, is we come to the particular rules about ancient Israel, and the point was, hey, we should pay someone for the work that they do, that they eat of the field that they work. We're to see the law as God's wisdom to be carefully applied to us. We need to ask ourselves, what is the principle behind the precept? And ultimately, all of the Old Testament can be boiled down to one of two principles. One of two commands. The first and second greatest commandment. Love God and love neighbor. In fact, this is exactly what Jesus taught regarding the Old Testament law. One of the religious leaders, the expert of the law, tried to trip him up one day with a question. And that never goes well when they try to school Jesus in Bible interpretation. But here's what happens in Matthew chapter 22. When the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. So he already had schooled one group, so this other group says, we're going to come and try to do better. One of them, a lawyer, an expert in the Old Testament law, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And Jesus said to them, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first, this is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Truly, you could look at the law and from a big picture view, boil it all down to they're telling them how they are to love God and love neighbor in their particular ancient context. And in today's section of Exodus chapter 23, he really wants to help us understand the second greatest commandment. He wants to answer this question for us. How do I love my neighbor as myself? How do I love my neighbor as myself? And Exodus 25, 23 gives five ways that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Let's look at the first reason. Let's look at the first thing he says. He says, first, that you love your neighbor by showing no partiality. You love your neighbor by showing no partiality. Look where Exodus 23 begins. Look what he says. You shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malice witness. What a warning to us. He says, Loving your neighbor begins with speaking the truth about them in all circumstances. 
We are not to spread a false report or a rumor. You know, we talked a lot about fake news from the media. But friends, how much does that really begin in the pews when we spread gossip about one another? Some of the worst words to start any conversation is, well, you know, I heard. Because you're likely about to spread a false report. Or in church leadership, you hear it all the time. This is the number one thing. I give you a rule. Never say this to a pastor, me, or any of them. People are saying. Because unnamed people say a lot of things when they don't have to be named, right? We are not to join in spreading unfounded rumors and untrue gossip. Does anyone remember the telephone game from childhood, right? What started as a true message got distorted into falsehood by the time it passed through many ears and many mouths. And he would warn us not to join in spreading what we know to be false. But I think he even goes one step further and say, don't join in spreading what you don't know to be true. It is better not to speak than to speak Falsehood. In fact, he says, don't just be careful who you listen to and what you spread. Be careful who you join hands with. Be careful what causes you come alongside and the motives of those you come alongside. Because when we follow the wrong person's advice or their cause, we can end up as malice witnesses. And this means we need to resist the urge to follow the crowd. Look at verse 2 of chapter 23. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit siding with the many so as to pervert justice. This is the Moses way of saying, just because everyone else is doing it doesn't mean you should too. And just because everyone else is saying it doesn't mean you should say it. Did you realize the scales of truth are not tipped by the majority opinion? Moses is warning us against believing and spreading something just because everyone else does. And in order to love our neighbors as we would desire to be loved, we've got to be fact-checkers. Because, friends, the majority once crucified the Son of God, and the majority can get it wrong again. We need to be careful what we believe and what we spread, particularly about others. We also need to be careful, because I think we're often tempted to believe what people most like us tell us, without even really having a good basis for doing it. Some of us already sort of set ourselves up against certain people. Maybe we set ourselves up against the majority, because, well, if everybody's believing it, it can't be true. Or we set ourselves up against the minority, because, well, if everybody believes it, that guy's obviously got a wild idea. But we got to be more willing to come with critical evaluation. Notice verse 3. Exodus 23, verse 3. Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuits. This confronts an idea our culture holds dear. Our culture actually encourages us in this day and age to show partiality and give special attention towards certain groups of people over others. And this isn't, and this isn't something we should do because it divides us unnecessarily and leads us to draw a wrong conclusion. Our culture will say two things at the same time. They'll say, 
Well, they'll say power is bad, and people with power are tempted toward bad, but we also need to give power away to other people. If power were really bad, why should I give it away to people who do not have it? Our culture would encourage us to always side with the underdog, whoever that may be. But Exodus 23 warns us, friends, that we're not to side with someone simply because they are the underdog, because even underdogs can be underhanded. We all can think of examples in news reporting of people who used this to sort of gain notoriety, and then we come to find out that wasn't really the whole story. Partiality of any sort is not a way we love our neighbor because our neighbors will not be like us. Your neighbors are going to be rich and some are going to be poor. Some are going to be part of majorities and some are going to be part of minorities. They may not look like you, talk like you, believe like you, or graduate from the high school here like many of you did. What matters is truth-telling. Regardless of what the culture says or what group they are a part of. Exodus 23 is saying equal measures. Don't be partial to the poor just because they're poor. But he also does the flip side in verse 6. It says this. You shall not pervert the justice to the poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous. For I will not acquit the, the wicked. You shall take no bribe, for a bribe binds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. He actually covers both extremes. Don't side with the powerless just because they're powerless. And don't side with the powerful just because they're them. He says, seek the truth. And so my question to us would be, are we partial people? Do people come into our church and think that we're cliquish people? Friends, I'll tell you something. The Lord has brought this issue up a lot over the past several months as we've looked at His Word in many ways. And maybe He's doing it in order to expose something in all of us. Are we tempted to show partiality inside of people based on their likeness to us rather than based on facts and truth? Loving our neighbor means ridding ourselves of cliques, of prejudice, of putting ourselves on a side other than the side of truth and the side of God. Because, friends, the culture's opinion is just going to shift like sand. But God's truth stands firm while all other ground is sinking sand. Loving our neighbor as ourselves means showing no partiality because, friends, we wouldn't want people being partial to us. But sandwiched in this passage is another command for us to consider. We need to love our neighbor by not being partial. But we also, you love your neighbor by bearing their burdens. You love your neighbor by bearing their burdens. Look at verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of the one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. Not only should we not be partial, he said don't even be partial against your enemies. You need to seek to bear their burdens. To love even those who hate you and persecute you and pray for them. God's word is telling you this. If your enemy has lost his donkey, 
regardless of how much of a donkey he may have been to you, you have a responsibility to return that donkey to him. That is what God's word would say to you. And friends, I hope we see the principle larger than livestock. Like, I hope you don't go home and maybe you've got a person in the neighborhood you don't like and you see their dog out wandering and going, well, you know, the scripture says it's got to be a donkey. I'm going to let the golden retriever just kind of go wander. No, friends, we see the principle, right? We have a responsibility to bear the burdens of those, even those who may not like us or who we may not like. We have a responsibility to come alongside them and help to rescue them from their burden. This text is calling us to unconditional neighborly love. And you may say, but Pastor, his donkey gets out all the time. But Pastor, you don't know what he said about me or did. And God's response is no if, ands, or buts about it. We have a responsibility to care for our neighbors even if they're simultaneously our enemies. And I love that the text doesn't say, you know, you're not going to have enemies. In fact, Jesus actually tells us that if you have only fans in your life, you're cursed. Cursed if all men speak well of you. If you live long enough, you will have people who will, at a minimum, not like you. And likely even become enemies. If the passage says whether they love us or hate us, that shouldn't color our ability to help and serve. We should bear the burdens of others. I've heard people say, maybe they don't, this is a small town. There are people who don't like other people. Apparently everybody knows it sometimes. I've heard people say, well, you know, that person goes to that church. I can't go there. I'm like, I mean, do you, how do you get to feel when they're in heaven and you're also right there, right? We've got to put that Aside, in the church, among God's people, we bear one another's burdens. Their messiness, their oddities, their issues, we carry the load. The church is meant to be a place where no one walks alone. But is that true of us? Are we willing to carry even the heavy burdens of others? To carry them the extra mile? And are we willing to be carried? Are we willing to admit our faults and admit our need for someone else to help us? This only works when we all embrace humility and we all recognize the need that we're going to have times in our life where we're going to need other people to carry us on the shoulders of faith. We love our neighbors by not being partial toward them, even if they don't like us. We love them by carrying their burdens. I love that it says, hey, you even need to go get in the dirt with him and help get that donkey out. But he goes even further. He says, third, we love our neighbor by honoring their Sabbath. By honoring their Sabbath. Verse 9 was a little bit of a different direction. I hope we'll see it. It still very much applies to us. Look at verse 9. You shall not oppress a sojourner. For you know the heart of a sojourner, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. But then your Bible likely has an unfortunate break between verse 9 and 10. And did you know the bold headings in your Bible between the verses, those are helpfully inserted by humans, but that was not part of what God wrote, right? So sometimes we've got to sort of toss those out, because they're not always the most helpful. Because verse 10 is connected to verse 9. Here's what we see in verse 10. 
For six years you shall sow your land and gather in its yield. But the seventh year you shall let it rest and lie fallow, that the poor of your people may eat. And what they eat, the beasts of the field may eat. You shall do likewise with your vineyard and with your olive orchard. The way that the people were not to oppress the sojourner was to let them rest. The Lord put in this cycle of seven that made sure everybody from the least to the greatest got a chance to rest. And they were even invited the poor to eat of their fields. Verse 10 speaks about the Sabbath year or the year of Jubilee. In the seventh year, the whole nation rested. Friends, we all enjoyed a three-day weekend just a weekend or so ago, right? Forget Labor Day. Imagine Labor Year. Forget about a three-day weekend. Imagine a whole year-long weekend. Praise the Lord. I'd vote for that, right? But they were also weekly to take a day of rest. Verse 12. Six days you shall do your work, but on the seventh day you shall rest, that your ox and your donkey may have rest, and the son of your servant woman and the alien may be refreshed. Here's the point. Your neighbor, whoever they are, the way that you love them is when you honor their day off. Bosses, sending texts and emails to your employees and expecting a response on their day off is not loving them or caring for them. Expecting them to have their phone on while they're on vacation, particularly if they've told you that they're going on vacation. That's not a way that you love and care for them. Friends, work-life balance is a biblical idea because work-rest balance is a biblical idea. Families, do you regularly allow everybody in the household to have some time of rest? Dads, do you let mom get some rest sometimes? Take the kids and let her just have some time to zen. Moms, dads are working throughout the day. Are there some ways you can allow them to rest and have some time to recharge and do what they need to do? Do we expect our neighbors to help us on Saturdays or Sundays with something that really could wait until Monday? Are we mindful of the rest of others, particularly as mindful as we want people to be of our rest? And the Sabbath is also a consideration that sometimes we have to work extra hard on the six days in order to rest on the seventh. Did you ever notice that the command to rest is also a command to work? And it's to do both. The Sabbath command tells us that we love others by working hard and by then allowing them to rest so that they may eat of our overflow. And it reminds us that how we live directly has an impact on everybody else around us. That idea that I'll do me and you do you does not work. All of us are interconnected and all of us and how we live have a direct impact on others. That's actually exactly what Moses will go on to tell us in the fourth point. He tells us to love your neighbor by living in holiness. Love your neighbor by living in holiness. Look at verse 13. He says it this way. Pay attention to all that I have said to you, and make no mention of the names of other gods, nor let it be heard on your lips. He says pay attention to how you live, to what you talk about, because that's going to reflect who you're ultimately living for. 
And he reminds us that Christians should be the best neighbors. I would hope that people get excited that they live next to people from this church. Or hopefully from any church, right? We've shared this statistic a lot. 77% of this county is not in church. So you have a neighbor who is not in church and probably knows you are and has a perspective on how you live and how you love. And Christians should be the best neighbors. We should live in holiness, and this means living in love that leaves an impact on others. And it's going to begin with what we say, but it also moves quickly to our calendars and what we schedule. Look at verse 14. Three times in a year you shall keep the feast to me. So there are three feasts which structure and shape the life of Israel. Have you ever heard print Jesus has a principle where the where your treasure is, there your heart is also? Here God's giving a principle where your calendar is, your heart will follow. What you schedule will become the most important thing in your life. Because I don't know if you're like me, what I schedule, I'm actually going to go do. Look at the three feasts that mark the life of Israel. Verse 15. He says, You shall keep the feast of unleavened bread. As I commanded you, you shall eat unleavened bread for seven days at the appointed time in the month of Abib. For in it you came out of Egypt. None shall appear before me empty-handed. Two, you shall keep the feast of harvest of the first fruits of your labor, of what you sow in the field. And three, you shall keep the feast of ingathering at the end of the year when you gather in from the field the fruit of your labor. Three times in the year you shall all your males adhere before the Lord God. So you got three feasts. you got the Feast of Unleavened Bread. That's the Passover. It's the feast that remembered their exodus from Egypt. You have the Feast of the Harvest. Why does the field needed to be harvest? All the men had to pick up and go and appear before God. And then you have the Feast of Ingathering. Before they could really begin to bring it, bring the field in and eat and enjoy it, God wanted to see them first to remind them that He is first. And these particular feasts, yes, were unique to Israel. I'm not telling you that you've got to mark these exact feasts off and make a track into the Middle East because Jesus himself took the Passover and transformed it into the Lord's Supper and established a new covenant. But he does remind us we are all responsible to structure our lives accordingly. And I believe God gave us a day. He brought his son from the dead on Sunday on something called the Lord's Day to structure our week and our lives with worship. And the principle remains, what you schedule will become supreme in your life. And what are we teaching the next generation when church becomes optional? What are we teaching when it becomes second underneath so many other things? Think about this. These feasts were to take priority over harvesting and ingathering. But rain and sports will often keep us from the presence of the Lord. Friends, what is first on our calendar? That is ultimately a step toward making something first in our life. 
is putting it first in what you schedule. If we won't even come together with his people in his presence, what makes us think we'll stand when life gets a little hard? Or when persecution may come? Because what you schedule becomes supreme. And Moses moves from what we say in holiness to what we schedule to mark and structure our lives in holiness. And then he says, you guys talk about the sacrifices that they gave. Look at verse 18. You shall not offer the blood of my sacrifice with anything leavened, or let the fat of my feast remain until morning. The best of the first fruits of your ground you shall bring into the house of the Lord your God. You shall not boil a young goat in its mother's milk. All of this has to do with giving proper sacrifices. And when he's got the first place on your calendar, friends, he will begin to also have the best and first place in your field. When we're careful to speak carefully about him, we're careful to let God have our calendars, that he will get the best sacrifices of praise through our life. Where your calendar is, your heart and everything else will follow. God is calling us to live holy, set up our lives, and to place him first. Because that is a way that we love our neighbor. How so? Because when we're everything God calls us to be, we will be everything our neighbor needs us to be. When you're everything God calls you to be, you will be everything your neighbor needs you to be. When God is properly loved, the first and greatest commandment, when he is loved with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, then out of the overflow, we will have proper love for our neighbor. When we get our heavenly priorities straight, our earthly priorities will begin to fall into place. Friends, life is top down, not bottom up. And in order to do that, we must put our faith in the right place. Let's look at this fifth and final principle. And I really think this is the most important thing I can tell you this morning. We love our neighbor. You love your neighbor by trusting the promise. I trust in the promise. Look at verse 20. Behold, I send an angel before you to guard you on the way and to bring you to the place that I have prepared you. See, God wasn't done with his people. The law wasn't the end of the story. He brought them to Sinai. They're scared. Moses is up. God's speaking in this cloud. And we actually were reminded in Exodus chapter 14, verse 19, God brought them there with an angel through the Red Sea, out of Egypt to this point. And in verse 20, he says, hey, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to send an angel to bring you to the promised land. And if God can do it once, he says, I can do it again. And God promises to provide and protect them. But he also says, hey, y'all need to be careful to walk with me. Verse 22. But if you carefully obey his voice and do all that I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and an adversary to your adversaries. God says, I will take care of your enemies, but you be faithful, but you be faithful to do what I say. Don't worry about seeking revenge. Get his donkey home. I'll take care of the rest. Don't let the world grab your hope. Because verse 33 warns that if you do that, they will become a snare to you. And I'd encourage you, you can look over the rest of the passage and see all God promises to do. He promises to blot out and clear out every enemy nation and any obstacle. 
He promises to give them the bread and the water that they need. He promises to fulfill the number of their days and bring them through the wilderness to the other side. God doesn't promise a cakewalk, but he did promise to walk with them. God would establish them. They needed only to let him lead. And they needed him to follow. And friends, God has a far greater promise for us than a promised land that's geographical in Israel. Friends, God is bringing us to a far greater promised land. And the journey won't be easy, but hear this. We are far better neighbors when we are better passengers on the journey that God has for our life. We are better neighbors when we're better followers of Christ. We love better when God is leading our life. Friends, when Jesus has taken the wheel of your life, he'll take care of the road range of relationships in your life. You simply let him take care of you. Keep focused on what's in front of you and what he has called you to do, and God will sort out the rest. Martin Luther famously said, God doesn't need your works, but your neighbor does. God calls us to love our neighbors as ourselves. And this begins by getting the two greatest commandments in the right order. When we love God as we ought, we will love others as we ought. When we're right with God, it will manifest in rightness with others. We will not love as we ought until we recognize that we are loved far beyond what we ought to be. See, Israel is going to fail to keep these laws. We will fail to be the neighbors we ought to be and the followers of Christ we ought to be. And this is where the promise of God is even more incredible. Only once we recognize and embrace how loved we are by God will the love of God and love for others overflow out of us. Jesus says this. This is said of Jesus, but God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died. For us. We know God isn't just calling us to love our enemies. He's actually doing it first in a far greater way. And it was a lot more than digging up some dirt and taking the donkey home. He made our problem his problem by going to the cross, burying our sins in his body on the tree, being buried in a borrowed grave. Rising again on the third day, so that we who are his enemies might be reconciled, not just to be neighbors, but to be friends, reconciled to Jesus through faith. And once we realize how loved we are, even when we were still his enemies, that will enable us to love our neighbors as we are, even those who are our enemies. And so today, if you're struggling to love your enemies, you can look to God's Word, you can ask for Him to help you by His Spirit, but ultimately it begins by realizing that you have been loved, even when you were an enemy. Even when you were far from God, God, was, God loved you and was pursuing after you, and today, if you need to be in right relationship with God, you can be. Through repentance and faith, you can come to Him and be received just as you are, Whatever you've done, he will take you and take you to where he wants you to be. It won't be a momentary change. It won't be like all your problems will go away like that. Little by little, 
He will take you where he longs for you to be. And little by little, God is taking all of us to a great and better promised land. And on the way, let's love our neighbors as ourselves. Let's stand and pray and prepare to respond to God's word. Father in heaven, I ask that you would, in these next moments, help us to recognize that we love because we were first loved. That we can love our neighbors, even those who were our enemies, because you have loved us first. You came and died for us. You bore our central and most important burden by dying on the cross for our sins and by rising again on the third day we might have new everlasting life. Father in heaven, help us to be people who bear burdens, who show no partiality, who honor others' rest, who live in holiness and trust the promise. And I ask and pray that you would be honored and glorified in everything that's said and done. And we ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. to the Joy! 